How are y'all doing today on the day, little beautiful day the Lord gave us today? Couldn't have a seat. Well, this morning um, we have our uh, speaker today is uh, is a man that uh, has really grown on the hearts of the elders and pastors here at Cornerstone. One of the things we do as elders is we look for men that have giftedness, and part of that giftedness is being able to teach. And so you guys, if you're new to Cornerstone, welcome. My name is Mike Steinwitter. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. Um, and if you're, you're, you're here because you're part of Cornerstone, welcome. We're glad to see all your faces again today. But part of this process is, uh, and this morning is, we wanted to introduce Bob Krychek. He's been up here a couple times before, so many of you have seen him. Um, but Bob is one of the men that, um, as elders, we're looking at, we're watching, and we're trying to see if, uh, if his giftedness fills uh, some of the requirements we have to be an elder here at Cornerstone. He definitely aspires for that role. And, uh, but this morning, we wanted to uh, welcome him to, uh, he's going to bring in the message to us this morning. So um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll get started. Well, Father, thank you, uh, first of all, for just this morning, Lord, for a beautiful day that uh, you've woken us up to, uh, to love and support you and serve you again today, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for the body that's here today. Uh, you bless each and every one of them today, Lord. And, and just for Bob, for Bob's heart to... Uh, just uh, love your word, Father, and his heart to want to be able to teach that uh, to, to the congregation, Lord. So thank you for that giftedness that Bob has, Father. And then this morning as, as he preaches, Lord, we pray that you open the hearts of each and every one that are here, not only uh, in service here, but actually online as well, Lord. Father, we want uh, so much for um, what Bob has to teach us today to resonate in their hearts, Lord, and uh, that as they move forward uh, and be faithful followers of you, Lord God, that uh, they ha- are uh, taught and they are equipped to do so, Lord. So uh, bless Bob this morning. Uh, give him the words that you want him to say in his message, Lord. And uh, we look forward to hearing his uh, message this morning. So we love you so much, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so I just turned this thing on. Can you hear me? Okay. Good morning, Cornerstone. For over a month now, we've looked together at Paul's second letter to the suffering believers at Thessalonica. One thing which has really struck me is how much grief these young believers had experienced, whether due to their persecution by unbelievers or from misunderstanding about their future hope. And we've seen how Paul has addressed both of these concerns. First, they are assured that since Jesus is returning in just judgment, their tormentors will get what they deserve. And the proven believers will share in Jesus' triumph and glory. Second, their confusion about the coming of the day of the Lord is corrected by reminding them of events which must occur prior to that day. And you know, we've spent the past couple of weeks talking about this particular aspect of his letter to the Thessalonians. The man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the people who would follow him in deception. At this point, Paul may be anticipating a further concern these believers could have based upon the deception and the unbelief of many. They might ask, and we might ask, we have believed your gospel message, but why don't others? 
You ever ask that question? Even unbelievers ask that question. Or how about this one? As we were deceived about the day of the Lord, because he says that they were in chapter 2, as we were deceived about the day of the Lord, could we fall into the same deception and unbelief as the followers of this man of lawlessness? You can see how these would be very much of a concern to these believers. They're struggling, and even though they have a genuine faith and a love that is growing and a steadfastness of hope, they have to wonder, is this going to last? If this faith is real, is it going to last? Let's all stand together, and I'd like to read the passage. Stand if you're able. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray. Father, please help us to understand the greatness of what you are setting before us. The comfort, the encouragement, the hope that it offers to us. Because we confess, Lord, just like those Thessalonian believers, we can wonder whether or not our faith is too weak. We can wonder whether or not our faith will last. And we go through times, difficult times, like they did. So help us to receive the encouragement that these believers receive. For Christ's sake, amen. You may be seated. I just realized I don't have the clicker. <laughs> Thank you. Paul wrote these very encouraging words to his spiritual family, including us. My desire is to demonstrate from these verses that God's eternal plan to save his people is what brings us comfort and stability, and hope. So listen for those ideas. There are two controlling features that drive these verses, and they are both highlighted on this slide. Well, not that one. <laughs> there we go. Thank you. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. That's the way our passage begins. 
The first word is really important to the entire passage we're looking at today. The word but. Because the word but tells us that what he was about to share with the Thessalonian believers was in complete contrast to everything that he had said previously in the chapter. Now that's where we can use this other passage. Notice what he said at the beginning of chapter 2. He didn't want them to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. And then he said, let no one deceive you in any way. So we already have the fact that there is something going on in that first part of the chapter, the deception that they had already experienced, and they were shaken up in their faith. They were not real confident at this point. And the word but introduces us to the fact that he's about to give them the hope, the encouragement, the consolation that they need in those circumstances. And he starts with thanksgiving to God. That's the best place we can start. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Thanksgiving to God is so important, not only because God deserves the praise, but because otherwise we can get the mistaken notion that we're partly responsible and we're holding up our end of the bargain, so to speak, in terms of our salvation, in terms of our relationship with God. I think that we have a tendency to over, overestimate the importance of our own faith, our own obedience, our own drive and determination that we're going to follow Jesus. And Paul has to show them, you know what? Your faith can be shaken up. And it is even possible, at least temporarily, for you to fall into deception. But take comfort because that's not all that's going on here. Now look at what happens you got the two verses up there, the, the verses from chapter 2 and the similar verses from chapter 1. In both cases, Paul starts with, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers. And if you're anything like me, you ask the question, wait a minute, why is he saying that again? The reason he's saying it again is because this time he's not going to talk about their faith and their hope and their steadfastness which are things that we should thank God for, but they're things that are not always constant, are they? Instead, he pulls back the curtain and reveals what's been going on in the background. In the foreground is their faith and their love and their steadfastness of hope. But far before their faith ever existed. Because God chose you. That wasn't dependent upon their faith. That wasn't dependent upon their love 
or their steadfastness? When did he do it? He chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But essentially, God's choice takes place in eternity past. And so instead of being focused on my faith here and now and my love here and now, he wants to draw their attention all the way back to eternity past and say, God has had a plan that includes you and it's eternal. It's not lately. God's plan goes back to eternity. It was his hidden plan from eternity past. But just like Paul has been revealing some things in this letter, now he's revealing his eternal choice of these believers and of us. Think about an iceberg. An iceberg can look rather impressive on the surface. But you know, right, what's below the surface. Something much bigger. The part that you see is an indication of the part that you don't see. Right? You don't want to get close to an iceberg, say, in the Titanic or any other ship. You know what the result is. Our faith is kind of like the visible part of the iceberg. God's eternal plan is what lies beneath. His eternal plan is the big deal. His eternal plan is the thing that really matters in the long run. Does that make sense? So this explains why in both of these passages, one in which he talks about their faith and their love and their steadfastness, and the other in which he talks about God's choice of them from eternity, both are cause for us to give thanks to God. Because it's what God himself has done. Consider this question with me. Since Paul considered it needful to reveal God's eternal choice of his people. How is this truth vital to believers then and now? We have to think about a couple of limitations. As mere humans, yes, that's me definitely, and all of you, we can only see the outward signs of genuine change, faith, love, and hope. We cannot see the underlying cause of this change, like the part in the iceberg that's hidden below the surface. Because we can only see what lies above, we can put too much confidence in our faith, in our experience, and try to make that the foundation of our comfort and stability and hope. How's that working out for us? Some people, and I'd have to confess I'm one of them, may become proud. Say, you know what? I believe this message. Why don't they? 
What's wrong with them? It made sense to me. Am I the only intelligent person in the room? Yeah, those of you who are laughing know that maybe you thought that way at some point. I did. When I first came to Christ, I thought it was all about me. It was all about my intelligence, my rationality, my logic, my reason, my reasonableness. Peter is another example of that kind of pride. Jesus told them the night that he was betrayed, you're all going to fall away because of me. And you know what Peter's response was. Oh Lord, I will never deny you. I will never fall away. I will go with you to death. Oh Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Do Peter's claims ever haunt you? When you reflect upon his insistence, upon his boldness, upon his arrogance, do you wonder about the fact that he was able to deny the Lord that easily? Because he had misplaced faith at that point, didn't he? All the apostles, Jesus said, were going to be sifted like wheat. And they all fell away. They all fled. They all abandoned Jesus. Not permanently, but at the time. And they've collapsed into fear and depression and defeat. You remember that after Jesus died, they were in hiding. They were afraid of the Romans. They had misplaced faith. They had too much faith, too much confidence in themselves, and too little in God. So let me ask you another question. Considering that Jesus talked about people being sifted as wheat, how well did our faith hold up when our entire world experienced a deadly pandemic and a lockdown. Did we do well? Were we looking away from ourselves and trusting in God that he was still in control of all the circumstances? Or did we find ourselves in the position of going, what are we going to do now? We can't worship in a building. What are we going to do now? We have to wear masks. We found ways to deal with it, didn't we? But we can get too much confidence in our own faith, our own faithfulness. And just like Peter and the apostles, we can easily fall because it's a misplaced faith. There's one other aspect of our limitations that we don't necessarily think about because it's not as obvious to us. You may remember that the Thessalonian believers had all turned from idols 
to serve the living and true God. Prior, prior to them coming to Christ, they had very limited notions of what God is like. God is not the biggest, baddest, superhuman being like the Greek and Roman pantheons. Those little g-gods were all too human with their passions and their weaknesses. And that is what these people were engaged in before they came to Christ. They had really no idea of what it was like to have a single almighty God and creator and provider with an eternal plan for all of his creation. That would have been foreign to them or what some people like to call a paradigm shift. We have our gods too, don't we? During the past couple of years, our gods may have been things like health, freedom, freedom to worship, um, <laughs> monetary. I mean, I don't know. If, I don't know about you, but I've been watching the IRAs that we have go down in value. <laughs> And I know a lot of you have probably seen the same thing. If we have misplaced faith, if we're putting faith in little g-gods like money or health or freedom, we're bound to be disappointed. We're bound to be struck down. Now let's take a more positive look. Let's see what God has revealed about his plan for his people. Notice the first things that he says to these brothers. He says that they're beloved by the Lord. How precious is that? That they're beloved by the Lord. They're not on their own. God has loved them from eternity. And he not only loved them, but notice what he did next. He chose them to be saved. So these are people who are loved and chosen by God. And with a, with a single ultimate purpose, our salvation. That is really good news. And it's good news that is, you notice, not dependent upon us. It's God's work. It's not our work. He did it. We're the recipients. And this is not the first time. Well, we'll, we'll look at the Old Testament passages in a minute. Here's another thing that's important about this passage. It says God chose you. God's choice is not just a matter of him going eeny, meeny, miny, moe, you know, and just picking somebody. He's not just 
selecting people randomly. The word chose there actually means he chose for himself. And that puts an entirely different complexion upon God's choice. He's not just doing it, like I said, to make a selection. There is something personal. There's something relational about what God chose to do. I am choosing these people for myself. That's personal. That's loved. I think about my own life. I know Todd sometimes talks about, you know, how his background included uh, skills in physical education. Uh, Mine did not. As a matter of fact, I remember quite well when I was young and people would be choosing teams. I'd be the last. And admittedly so, I mean, I, I wasn't good at sports. So I couldn't blame anybody for not choosing me. <laughs> but I would always be chosen last because I didn't really have anything to offer. A different kind of choice has to do with my wife of over 40 years, Kathy. I chose her to be my wife. And it wasn't because she's perfect. It wasn't because she's you know, the supermodel, or because she's the great business person, or because she is the best mother in the world, although I think she did a great job. I chose her because I loved her. And isn't that exactly what God is saying here? We were loved by the Lord and chosen by Him. He doesn't choose us Randomly, it's not for a team, it's not for a sport. He loves us, and so he chooses us for himself. Isn't that precious? Take a look at these passages from the Old Testament that express the same ideas. Both of them are from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 33, verse 12. He says, The beloved of the Lord, exact same phrase. The beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. And then in chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Now, in these Old Testament passages, he's talking about Israel. I'm not saying he's talking about us. And the kind of choice that he made was different. He chose them to be a people for himself in the midst of all the nations of the earth. Whereas his choice of us is very personal and individual and eternal. But the same language is used 
when he chose Israel for himself, as is used by Paul in talking about his choice of us. Isn't that beautiful? And the purpose, he expresses the purpose as well. They dwell in safety. God surrounds him and dwells between his shoulders. How do you dwell between somebody's shoulders? Yago, right? The beloved of the Lord dwells between his shoulders. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. I think of that anytime I think of the, the fact that God chose us for himself. We are his treasured possession. And he says, because the Lord loves you, at the end there, the Lord has brought you out and redeemed you. Has he redeemed you today? If he has, it's because of his great love and choice of you, taking you to himself as his treasured possession. Now, there is one thing about the passage we're looking at today that's a little odd. And if you have any other translation besides the ESV, you may have wondered why the passage in ESV says God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. But your translation might say something more like the second line there. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. I'm an old NASB user. I think a lot of you are. Um, and you might be thinking, how in the world did they get that translation, that difference between the Bibles? Very simple. I'm not going to take much time to talk about it. But we have some 5,700 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. They do not all agree in all places. This is one of the places where a bunch of the manuscripts say first fruits, and a bunch of the manuscripts say from the beginning. You still say that's a big difference. Well, it's a big difference in English, but not in Greek. I'm not expecting you to read the language in the middle of that slide, but you notice the ESV uses the word in its manuscripts, aparkane. It's a single word. The NASB and other Bibles have two words, aparkes. You notice how similar those sound? You notice just looking at them, even if you can't read the letters, there's only a difference of one letter. And that's especially true because some of the manuscripts didn't even include spaces between the words. And so one would read to your eyes, apercane, and the other would read apercase. You wouldn't ever make a mistake if you were copying that, would you? Or if you were just listening, if someone was speaking it and you were recording it, apercane, apercase. Oh, that's easy to tell the difference, right? No. That's what explains the difference between what you may see in the ESV as first fruits and what you see in other Bibles from the beginning. Now, the great news about this is it doesn't actually matter 
And here's why. The idea of God choosing people as first fruits is found elsewhere in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the word first fruits comes from the Old Testament, where it talks about the first part of a crop to become ripe. And so you gather up that first fruits of the crop and you give it in sacrifice to God. But the key thing about the first fruits in the Old Testament was that that first fruits was like the anticipation and the guarantee of the full harvest to come. And so when Paul, if he was saying God chose you as first fruits, he's saying, You guys were the first to believe in Christ in Thessalonica, but you're not the last. There's more to come. God has a harvest in mind, not just a few that ripen first. Does that make sense? On the other hand, from the beginning, that occurs throughout Scripture. By the way, in order to find out more about this, we talked about it more in the podcast. So uh, if you want to find out more about textual variants, like we're discussing briefly here, um, you can listen to the podcast and you'll hear more about that. Look at these two passages from the Bible. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. This is a fantastic passage. It tells us something great about our God. He doesn't have to look through history and go, what's happening? Instead, he says, I can tell you all about the end, things that have never taken place yet. And I've been able to do it since the very beginning of time. God is all-knowing. And he has known everything since the beginning of time. He hasn't learned anything. He doesn't need to. And so he not only can say that he knows the end from the very beginning, but it's actually his purpose that he's talking about. You see that? I will accomplish all my purpose. Paul, in Ephesians, he uses similar language. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So you see that whether or not we were to say that we're first fruits or whether God chose from the beginning, both are very scriptural ideas. But this idea of from the beginning, I think, is better established in scripture about God's choice of his people. Now, he chose us, he loved us, his intention for us is to be saved, 
But he not only chooses the goal, he chooses the means to achieve it. You know, if anybody has a good plan, they need to work out the details as to how that plan is going to be accomplished, right? God's the same way, infinitely better. He has an eternal plan, and his way of working out this salvation is through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. The sanctification of the Spirit indicates that knowing how he wanted to save us would be by means of the Spirit's work. He would send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would transform and change our hearts so that we would respond in belief in the truth. Notice that belief in the truth is part of the plan, but it's not the main part of the plan, right? The main part of the plan is he chose us to be saved because he loved us. But he has to achieve that in our actual lives, in history. He made his choice in eternity, but we live in history, and so he executes his plan in history by sending the Spirit to make us his own. And then we respond by faith in the truth. But it's never because of our faith. The entire Bible, you can search it from beginning to end. You will never find a place that says that God chooses us or saves us because of our faith. The expressions that are used in the Bible is that he saves us through faith or by faith. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And he didn't stop there. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So even though we do respond in faith to the gospel message, what we are doing is we're responding because the Spirit moved us, the Spirit worked within us to make us new creations. Our faith is not our contribution to salvation. Remember, one of the main things that we're trying to get out of this message is these people are wondering, is my faith going to last? And why don't other people believe as I do? It's because our faith doesn't originate with us. It originates with God. And this faith that God chose as a means to salvation is not a generic, unfocused belief. It is belief in the truth. See it in verse 13? Sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
Now, I told you at the beginning that the word but indicated a contrast with what preceded. And here's where that contrast is first quite apparent. Notice what he had said in verses 10 through 12. He talked about wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We find the truth in Paul's gospel. That's what they had heard. That's what he called them back to. He said, God called you through our gospel, and now you have belief or faith in the truth. Where else do we find the truth? We find the truth in God's word, in the Bible. And finally, who is the truth? Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I have to confess, I was the last person in the world to seek after God. When I was young, I was a churchgoer, not by choice, but because my parents dragged me along with them. And as soon as we moved from Nebraska to California and my parents stopped going to church, I jumped for joy. Gives me more time to do what I want. I had no interest in God. Didn't even know if he existed. Didn't care. God seemed totally irrelevant to me. And that's the way the rest of my life would have gone. But God. He knew how to reach me. And he did so through a friend in high school who through his persistence finally persuaded me to come and join him at a youth Bible study. I'm going, I don't want to go to a Bible study. Sounds boring. Sounds irrelevant. Why do I want to learn about that? But my friend persisted. Thank God. He got me to this Bible study and eventually... In all of my ignorance, in all of my arrogance, in all of my resistance, the Spirit of God worked in me, and I had belief in the truth. And I have walked with Jesus Christ ever since that day in 1971. I can't take credit for that. Does that resonate with you? In your experience, it wasn't because you were just strongly pursuing after God all of your life. Maybe some of you did, but if you did, it was because God was already working in you. But I, can, I totally confess, I would never have darkened the door of a church again if it weren't for the fact that he saved me. But God chose me 
I was beloved of the Lord. And he brought me to himself through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. So finally, God had made the plan. God not only planned his work, but he worked his plan out in history. He planned the work in eternity. He worked out the plan in history. And that's what he means when he says, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a ride. What God purposed in eternity, he inevitably accomplishes in history. There is a, a hymn I don't know if any of the rest of you know. It's one that is very precious to me. I'm not going to try to sing it for obvious reasons. You can be very thankful for that too. But I do want to read the words and I want you to follow along and see if this resonates with you like it does with me. And I, just two words in advance. One, the word awful that occurs in this first verse means filled with awe, not awful as in terrible. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O oh our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see your churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing your redeeming grace. Even when I'm not singing it, it's hard not to tear up. <laughs> what made the difference between the unbelievers who rejected the truth and the Thessalonian believers? God alone, which is what Paul is revealing to them. Now, we've talked about some pretty heady theological truths, but I hope that you see that these things are important because they take us back into eternity, into God's plan, into his intention for his people. And not just into what our current experience is, whether it seems good or it seems bad. But Paul draws some or explicit conclusions in verses 15 through 17. First, he says, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. 
either by our spoken word or by our letter. So he's saying, God has this plan. It includes the truth. And here's where you find the truth. He said it's in the things that Paul had written. It's in the things that they would find in their Bibles. They needed to stand firm and hold to those things. In contrast to them being shaken up earlier. Their faith was shaken. This is the way that they could stand firm. And then he prays. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. God the Son and God the Father are both involved with the answer to this prayer. That is as personal as it gets. Who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. These are the things which God has already granted to his people. We may not always experience them fully, but he has already given us a comfort that is intended to be forward-looking into eternity and a hope that is really beneficial. And he does it all through grace. And finally, what does he want for us? What is he going to do in us? He will comfort your hearts and establish them. That is, make them firm, make them stable. Not easily shaken. In every good work and word. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much in this passage. And I ask that your people would be able to see the greatness of your plan. And that even though our faith is required, even though we are called upon to believe, that that was also part of your plan. And we thank you for it. Let us always place our faith in you and not in ourselves, and not in our ability to do what is right, or love what is right, or to trust what is right. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen.